It's blazing hot outside. You get in your car to turn on the AC to get cold air pumping, but it blows hot air out. This issue is commonly caused by low refrigerant due to leaks in the AC system. You want an easy, all-in-one solution that will restore the cold air in no time. AC Pro Recharge Kits. Make restoring cold air easy for even those with zero DIY experience in less than 10 minutes. Save time and money versus going to a shop by picking up an AC Pro Recharge Kit today. Be a pro with AC Pro. I'm Mark Feinstein, executive reporter for MLB.com. Welcome to the Executive Access Podcast. Chris Antonetti grew up in Connecticut rooting for Don Mattingly and the Yankees and spent his college years in Washington, D.C. at Georgetown University. But virtually all of his professional life has taken place in Cleveland, where he's been a member of the Indians' front office for the past two decades. Antonetti began his career with the Indians as an assistant in the baseball operations department, working his way up through the ranks to his current role as president of baseball operations. I sat down with Antonetti to discuss what he learned working with legendary Georgetown coach John Thompson, why he turned down a chance to work in the NBA, the impact Mark Shapiro had on his career, and much, much more. Enjoy this conversation with Cleveland Indians president of baseball operations, Chris Antonetti. Chris, thanks for taking some time. Appreciate it. My pleasure. Uh, so you were a Yankees fan growing up in Orange, Connecticut, dreaming of someday wearing pinstripes like Don Mattingly. What was your peak as a player? Uh, peak as a player was probably my 12-year-old year in Little League. Uh, I think that's probably when I peaked and had the most success and went downhill from there. <laughs> a lot of bold numbers on the back of the 12-year-old baseball Exa- card. Yeah, exactly. exactly. <laughs> was baseball always your passion? It, it, baseball and basketball were my two passions. Actually, I love sports. I mean, I grew up in a family of four boys and sports everything we did revolved around sports. We'd get home every day, drop our backpacks off and go and play in the backyard or outside in the driveway, wherever it was. And anything that was in season, we were playing. Tennis was your big sport as you went on, right? Tennis was where I was most successful. Yeah. I, I liked it and happened to be where maybe I was most skilled and performed best, but not was not as passionate about tennis as I was maybe about some other sports. When you were in high school, you had your own business stringing rackets in your garage. I did. Did you always have kind of a business-oriented mind? <laughs> um, I think so. I mean, I uh, it was an opportunity for me to you know to earn some money. My parents always kind of instilled in me that the way you earn money is to work, and so we found ways. My my parents had a car washes in Connecticut, so we we worked at the car washes on the weekends, and stringing rackets was another way to make some money. You once said when you went to college, you realized it was probably time to focus on the academics rather than the playing side. But did you know when you went off to college that you wanted to pursue a career in sports? Well, I had always been passionate about sports, but I didn't know what a career in sports could be if you weren't playing, especially for someone who wasn't a skilled player and didn't have extensive experience playing in college or professionally. So I dreamed of that. I wasn't sure how possible it might have been, but as I went through college and got a degree in business, at the time there were only two programs that had some type of sport program, the University of Massachusetts and then one at Ohio University. And so that's kind of how the path led me to, to professional baseball. You graduated from Georgetown with a degree in business administration, but while you were there you were a student manager for the basketball team under John Thompson. Yeah. What impact did Coach Thompson have on you? It was an incredible experience for me, just not only to be around Coach Thompson, but be around extraordinary athletes, people from very different backgrounds than my own. Allen Iverson was there. Uh, We actually had a really good team that year. We lost in the Elite Eight uh, to the University of Massachusetts with Marcus Camby, but the team was great. The dynamics, Coach Thompson was extraordinary, very different in private maybe than what his public persona might be. I vividly remember a lot of the practices. Most of the time was actually talking about 
life skills and growing up as a man and accountability as much as it was about basketball. You mentioned UMass. You ended up going there to get your master's in sports management. At that point, were you looking at just a career in sports? Had you narrowed it down in your mind to, I want to work in baseball? How did, how did it come about for you? So my priorities continue to be working. The thing I love being part of is being part of a team that's working towards doing doing something and, and winning something. And so for me, professional sports or college sports would be a great avenue for doing that. And I really wanted to be on the team building aspect. That's what I'm passionate about. While I had interest in some of the other business elements and that's what my background was, the thing that motivates me is to be part of a team trying to do something extraordinary. And so my focus, even going to the University of Massachusetts, was to try to find a way to work in ideally professional baseball or professional basketball. While you were at UMass, one of your professors, Glenn Wong, was advising the Red Sox on salary arbitration yeah. cases, and he allowed you to help him prepare those cases. That was kind of your first look into the front office world of baseball. What, what, what did you think about it as you were going through that for the first time? It was. It was an incredible opportunity that Glenn provided because it gave me an insight into professional sports and gave me a practical skill to actually develop, and I think that helped me secure an internship with, with the Expos. But that experience was great. It was eye-opening for me. At that time, the salary arbitration process, it was with just one arbitrator. Um, so we spent hundreds of hours of work preparing a case, and I'll withhold the name of the player and the arbitrator, but we get into the hearing. We make our presentation, and after the hearing, the arbitrator asked the player for his autograph. <laughs> that wasn't a great sign that, we had a, that, that it was going to be a favorable outcome for us, but it was an extraordinary process. I learned a lot, and I'm really grateful to have that have had that opportunity. So you didn't just get to help prep the case. You actually got to go into the case. We were in the be, hearing. Oh, room. wow. Mm -hmm. so that must be quite yeah. an experience as a grad student, really not only just sort of being an assistant, but to, to, actually, to see to, to see, see what happens, yeah, to see the whole process from beginning to end, and the interaction with the Red Sox officials at the time. Mike Port was the primary port, primary point person with the Red Sox. He connected with Glenn a lot, and we, myself, and a couple of other people were involved in that process. And it was a great, great learning experience for me. I'm going to jump a little bit here. Twenty years later, how has that arbitration process changed the most? Oh, a lot of things have changed. Just even the way the sophistication I think back on what we prepared at the time and now think about the sophisticated cases that are presented and obviously it's now a three-person panel instead of just the single arbitrator which creates maybe a little bit more fairness um, so I think those are the things that, that that's changed it's still unfortunately an adversarial process where you have to go in the room and you know, talk about a player and as a club present maybe some of the things he doesn't do well and then the very next day try to welcome him back into the organization and into your spring training camp and try to flip that that dynamic back to being part of a team together. Probably a lot of wins and RBI talk back then. A lot of wins and <laughs> RBI talk, yes. Yeah. Uh, you mentioned the internship with the Expos, 1997, you're interning for the Expos in West Palm Beach. Uh, I assume, in, I know having spoken to other people, minor league internships are sort of a wide ranging in terms of your responsibilities. Yeah. What were you doing for the Expos? Was it more a case of what weren't <laughs> yeah, you doing? Yeah, <laughs> exactly. And, and at the time, it was a really small office. Uh, baseball has grown in complexity and grown in numbers within the front office. But at the time, in that player development department, Dave Littlefield was the farm director, Neil Huntington was the assistant farm director, and I was the intern and we had an administrative assistant. That was the totality of our operations and player development at that point in time. But what it gave me was an incredible opportunity. So I made peanut butter and jelly sandwiches and picked people up at the airport and filed, entered things into the, you know, the old AS400 uh, baseball system. Whatever needed to be done, I was happy to do because it afforded me the opportunity to work in professional baseball. And 
Um, the great part about that was being around an extraordinary group of people led by Neil and Dave and then a lot of other coordinators who have maintained, who I've maintained those relationships with. They helped give me an education in baseball. So while I was doing, you know, I may have been typing up, my role may have been just to type up the pitching manual, but what that allowed me to do was to sit next to our pitching coordinator for hours and hours and learn about pitching. And I was grateful for guys like Jim Benedict and Rick Sofield and Dave Malpass and uh, guys that spent a lot of time with me helping me learn about the game. Later that year, you're hired full-time by the Expos as the assistant director of player development. Uh, you left them, I believe, when the Indians tried, wanted permission to, to talk to you and they wouldn't give it. How do you look back at your stint with Montreal? What did you learn most during that first job in baseball? I learned so much and having the opportunity to work uh, alongside Neil, um, who was who's still a very close friend of mine and who I've learned so much from it. Um, it was, there, I was learning literally every single day, every single minute I was there because I knew nothing <laughs> effectively. Right. And there were so many people, as I mentioned, that were so grateful or so generous with their time and, and Neil especially. And he's continued to be a mentor for me and someone I continue to rely on for, for guidance and counsel. I read that the Miami Heat offered you a job at one point while you were they with did. the Expos. Yeah, I had to decide between an in, continuing at that time as an intern with the Expos or a full-time position with the Heat, and I chose to, to stay with the Expos. Has there ever been a temptation to give another sport a try, or, or no. once you started in baseball, that no. was that was, that was it. And I, and I think as I learned, actually, as I learned more about the operations within professional baseball, I became more excited about it because leading a baseball organization is extraordinary, com extraordinarily complex. It's not just putting together 25 guys that play every night. There's a whole organization, including minor leagues and scouting and player development, where we may have 200 people within our just our baseball operations umbrella. In other sports, the NBA specifically, that umbrella is a lot smaller. It's not quite as complicated. And I was. I love the challenge about potentially continuing on that path in baseball and being part of that broader organization. Your old friend Paul DePodesta, who you replaced with the Indians, uh, made the move from baseball to the NFL, chief yeah. strategy officer for the Browns. Could you see this becoming a trend in sports, or do you think Paul is a unique individual where uh, it, it's going to, you know, almost, almost like we're talking with the two way players now, where it's going to take a very extraordinary person to be a hitter and a pitcher? Yeah. Uh, for somebody to jump from one sport to another in a non-business mm -hmm. capacity seems like uh, it would be a pretty difficult move. I do think it would be a difficult move. I think Paul is an extraordinarily bright guy um, that has a great mind in thinking about system design and how to put pieces together and build an organization to, to and strategies to build an organization to succeed. I think that there are some overlapping skills that you know apply to any industry in terms of leadership, communication, design thinking. Um, putting strategies and processes together to get to an outcome that translate no matter what industry you're in. That said, professional sports, there's a lot of niches and specificities to know within each game that may apply to baseball but are very different than football. So I think it's possible to have overlap and exposure to different sports and to lead in different realms, but I, it would be challenging. You joined the Indians before the 99 season as an assistant in the baseball ops department. A little more than two years later, you were promoted to director of Major League Operations. The roster of people that you have worked with with the Indians is really very impressive. As you're going through your, your time with the organization, especially the beginning, could you tell that you were working with people who were going to go on to do great things in this game? I think I had an appreciation for the intellect, the curiosity, the passion of the people from day one. I mean, I 
my Paul DePodesta was the one who actually helped me transition. We spent a month and a half together, just him kind of sharing and helping me transition into the organization at the time. You know, Josh Burns, Mark Shapiro, um, John Hart, Neil Huntington. There were a ton of people in the, Ben Sherrington had just left the office at that point. We went to school together at University of Massachusetts. So walking in the door, it was an immediate like, okay, this is an incredible environment, an incredible group of people, not only with their skills, but the quality of people that were within the organization and their willingness to invest their time in the development of others was something that struck me from the beginning. And it was a culture we aspired to continue to, to build and grow even today. I feel like I've asked this in almost every interview I've done for this series. Uh, you worked with Mark Shapiro for a long time, mm-hmm. like almost everybody else. Yeah, right. <laughs> what did you learn most working under Mark? Oh, it would be hard to narrow to just one because he's been such a close friend and mentor and probably the largest professional or influence in my professional career. I think at the heart, if I were to summarize in one thing, is Mark's um, profound care for people and that the recognition that no matter what's happening, no matter whether it's a you know, guy standing in the box trying to perform at the major league level or a strength and conditioning coach trying to help a guy get stronger, they're all people. And he cared deeply about everyone and treated everyone with respect um, and and cared about helping them grow and develop. And that's something that, you know, I've I saw firsthand, I benefited from firsthand and tried to carry forward. Five months after your first promotion, you become the assistant general manager of the Indians. Your duties included player acquisitions, evaluations, contracts, farm system, pro scouting development. Uh, statistical analysis was there one area I mean obviously you have your hand in a lot of different things is there one area that you always felt either most comfortable or that you enjoyed the most I enjoyed everything I think one of the things I've tried to do is always I love learning about new things I love new challenges Uh, hearing you read that makes reminds me of my thoughts at the time like what's Mark doing giving me all these responsibilities (laughs) Uh, and actually I know it was purposeful on his end and that one of the things he believes is to continue to challenge people to help them grow and develop and it's something that we again try to carry forward today but I enjoyed all elements of that I I mean there were certain strengths that I had in terms of my background and business and analytics or at the time analytics it's embarrassing to say now because as I look back at the work I was doing and we were calling analytics and compare it to the work that's being done today it's night and day different not a lot um, of exit velocity yeah and, uh, launch angles or even the, the the level of math that we were employing at the time was uh, a little bit different than what our guys are using today one of the more bizarre nights of my career covering the Yankees was in 2007 the Mitch game <laughs> yeah. uh, what were your memories of, of that night it's hard. One of the things is only in Cleveland, right? <laughs> right. right? That's something that Home where else is yeah, right. yeah, where else do midges descend from the sky to have an impact on a sporting <laughs> event? Um, the thing that struck me most, actually, from that game, while everything else was going on, and we had a picture in our player development hallway for a long time of Fausto Carmona at the time, now Roberto Hernandez. The look of focus and intensity he had while there were midges all over his face and all in front of him, and you could barely see home plate because it was so thick. And it was like he was just the only person on the field with the catcher, and he pitched that way that night. And obviously it affected a lot of other people in, a lot, in, in different right. ways. So I'm yeah. glad the umpires didn't stop the game. Yeah, I remember well, you know, Joe Torre said that was his mm-hmm. one regret yeah. of his entire tenure in New York was not pulling his team off the field. Mm-hmm. I remember the the press box windows were closed and just seeing the midges on the windows it was 
gross. I mean, you, could barely, you could barely see out windows. Yeah, they yeah, were I mean, covered. It was it was yeah. really. I had never seen anything like that before, and I've been to Cleveland a bunch of times, right. but I had never seen that. Right. That was uh, that was certainly a bizarre game. Uh, you were reportedly a candidate for GM jobs with both the Cardinals and Mariners at different points. You withdrew your name from consideration both times. Did you not feel you were ready, or was it more about staying in Cleveland? I, I've said this before. I've felt like I've been the luckiest guy in baseball for having the opportunity to work alongside so many extraordinary people. And I have always felt, from the time I was an intern with the Expos to the time to today, I've always felt like I've had the best job I could possibly dream of. And there were other opportunities at different points in my career that were interesting and I thought about, but in the end I reflected back and I was still having the opportunity in Cleveland to be challenged, to work with an extraordinary group of people that helped me learn and grow and it just made sense to stay. February 2010, the Indians announced that Mark will take over as team president and you're going to take over as GM after that season. What is that year like, knowing you're going to be moving up? Did you, was it business as usual? Was there, were there more things you paid attention to, knowing that you were going to be ascending to the next role? So I think one of the things that was so helpful for me in my career is the way in which Mark provided me opportunities to grow and lead and partner in and in leading the baseball organization and as we spent more and more time together Mark would continue to give me more and more uh, responsibilities and so there wasn't at that point we had worked together for a long time and it was less of a transition than you might expect because a lot of those things were happening already and Mark and I were partnering in so many of those things and while he was always the one that was ultimately accountable which is a which does change the dynamic admittedly I was involved in everything so when I ascended to the position, there wasn't really anything I hadn't done yet other than be the one who had kind of the final accountability. Mark moves up to his new role, you become GM, Mike Chernoff takes over as assistant GM, Derek Falvey takes over as director of baseball operations. Uh, you've always talked about the front office being a collaborative effort. Is it ever a challenge when there are disagreements? I mean, obviously, is it just a matter of one guy has the final say and takes all the information? I, obviously, it's, it's got to be, I can't imagine you all agree all the time. We encourage disagreement, actually. I think to the extent we all look at an issue the same way or arrive at the same end point every time, that's not healthy. So we actually try to encourage and get people with divergent opinions, divergent backgrounds, divergent thought processes to help us look at it, whatever the issue is in a, in a bunch of different ways. And so we've had a lot of disagreements and a lot of uh, conversations around table. Most of the time they don't get heated, sometimes they do. Um, but I think that's how you get to the, to the best decision in the end is by having that healthy environment where people feel safe and secure enough to disagree with each other and try to work towards the best outcome for the organization. It used to be every team had a general manager and they were kind of in charge of making decisions. Mm -hmm. uh, now you see so many teams going to the structures of President Baseball Operations or the Twins of uh, chief baseball officer with Derek. Um, you know the Rays have two guys. There's Theo and Jed in Chicago. It, it's become a very uh, big trend to have mm -hmm. multiple top level uh, front office guys in baseball ops. Why do you think more clubs have gone in that direction? I think because the job has become more complex. There are a lot more people to manage today in, in systems and departments than there were 15, 20 years ago. Um, there weren't sports psychology departments, there were analytic departments or research and development or learning and development or, I mean, and even within player development and scouting, those areas have, have grown in complexity. So I think it's just a more, uh, the responsibilities involved, it would be really difficult for any one person to do 
individually. And so the approach we try to take, not just with Mike and I, but with our entire leadership group, is kind of share those responsibilities to um, to manage it as best we can. Ross Atkins, who's the Blue Jays general manager now, and you worked with him in Cleveland, uh, introduced you to your wife. Have you had yeah. to have you had to train him a player or something? Is it, thank you. <laughs> yeah, I still. That was the. Uh, I will say that's the best thing that's happened to me, and I'm in very. Uh, I'm in a lot of debt to Ross for that because I. All, of all of the things I have in my life, Sarah and the two girls, they I wake up every day wondering how, how lucky, or being so thankful for how lucky I am. And Ross introduced me to Sarah, and um, I'm not sure. I'd have to give up a lot of players, and I'm not sure even then I could ever repay him for that. So, What made Terry Francona the right man to manage the Indians when you hired him in 2000, after 2012? Uh, I think there were a lot of, th- a lot of things with Tito. Um, probably most importantly is the environment and culture he creates within a team and Tito cares so deeply about individuals and builds such great relationships with everyone um, that that was something we really needed and he has helped unify the organization and that there's no longer kind of a major league team on an island it is a major league team as part of a broader organization and he does an extraordinary job of connecting front office people minor league staff our scouts um, everyone within the organization feeling that we're working towards the same goal and pulling on the same end of the rope. Early in Tito's time here, you guys brought in Nick Swisher, you brought in Jason Giambi, mm-hmm. what was otherwise a pretty young team. Mm-hmm. How important is it to have veterans like those guys in a clubhouse, especially when you are a young team? Each team dynamic, I would say, is a little bit different, and I don't think there's one magic formula for having successful teams. I but I do think there's value in having the right people to help shape an environment. And sometimes that can be players that just come through your system and they might have the right leadership attributes and people might be willing to look to them and follow their lead. In other cases, it might be helpful to have someone who's been there and been experienced to come into the environment to help shape it. In our case, I think we had a few things happening at the same time. We had a young group of guys that wanted to do things the right way, that had an idea of what type of identity they wanted to have as a team. And then we were able to complement that with a couple of guys, Jason Giambi probably being the strongest voice of that group that had experienced a lot of things in his career to help maybe accelerate their the learning and development of that group of guys that was already headed in a pretty good direction. And now we've seen that group kind of take off, take that identity on their own. So now as we're bringing new people in, whether it's people from outside the organization or guys up from our minor leagues, there's an understanding of expectations, behaviors, and team identity. A lot of teams, every year we see a trade deadline, mortgage part of their future to bring in guys to try to make a run that year. 2016, you made a very big trade getting Andrew Miller, but it was a guy with two plus years of control. How tough are those deadline decisions to make where you're forced to weigh short-term interests versus the long-term? They're really hard because there's, there's no magic formula for doing that. Um, part of our responsibilities within, base, within baseball operations is balancing the present with the future, and those decisions are at the core of that. How much of our equity are we going to place in this year's team and at what expense of future years? And in Andrew's case, we knew we were, and we told Cash at the time, hey, you're getting, you're getting really, you're getting great players. And we know when you fast forward three or four years from now, you're going to look, we're going to look back and realize how painful that trade was for the Cleveland Indians. But hopefully in the meantime, we were able to move forward as an organization and have an opportunity for compete, to compete for postseason and for 
ultimately a World Series. And that was the rationale in trading for Andrew, is that it was someone that could not only impact 2016, but they could impact our 2017 and 2018 seasons as well. You guys make that magical run in 2016. You get to the World Series. You get to Game 7. How long did it take you to get over that night? I'll let you know when it happens. <laughs> <laughs> what, what was that whole experience yeah. like for you? I mean, obviously, with with the Indians having not won since 1948 yeah. and the Cubs having not won since 1908, that World Series was, was a, a pretty memorable one. What's it like to go through that knowing that at this point you've done your work, now you yeah. basically have to just sit back and watch, right? Right. So there were a lot of different – there's a wide range of ways I can answer that question. I think one of the things that – we tried to be purposeful of during that time was recognizing and appreciating the process and appreciating the journey. And one of the things I did not do in 2007 when we advanced to game seven of the ALCS, I was so focused on the outcome, so focused on just winning the game, winning the series, trying to get to the World Series in advance that I didn't appreciate it along the way. At the start of the postseason in 2016, we talked about it as a group, like getting in the postseason is it's really hard it's not something that happens every year let's make sure we appreciate the journey along the way and let's invest ourselves in that and enjoy the process and see where it leads us so it was an incredible experience in some form some great memories both within our office within our player development our scouting staff with family members that are lifelong memories I'll have and I'm really grateful for those 2000 the or excuse me game seven was the range of emotions I mean it was it was one of the best postseason games potentially in baseball history and had everything you could possibly imagine and you know I ran through the gamut of those emotions as the game unfolded and I was there with my family and my closest friends and co-workers so I'll look back on the experiences of one of the best in my life even though the outcome wasn't wasn't what I wanted. Part of that journey to get to the World Series was an ALCS matchup against the Blue Jays yeah. who were being run by your old right. buddy Mark Shapiro and the man who introduced you to your wife yeah. Ross Atkins. Yeah. What what was that like for you emotionally, just going up against them? It, it was really hard. And we talked about it. I've been connected with Mark and Ross before the series. And, you know, Mark came down to the clubhouse after it ended. And um, it was emotional. You know, I think it, it's hard that someone that you've worked alongside for so – two people you've worked alongside for so long and are close. Not only you respect great as uh, – or expect as great professionals and in their role, but as great friends too. So – I, I mean, the term bittersweet gets thrown around a lot, but those are kind of the emotions I was feeling. This is your 20th year with the Indians in a business where people move seemingly all the time. Did you ever think you'd be with one franchise this long? I, I didn't. I the answer to that no. I'm not sure I ever did. When you look around professional sports, um, it doesn't seem like that happens very often. And now, if you had told me when I was a you know, 18 year old growing up in Orange, Connecticut, that I'd spend 20-plus years of my life in Cleveland, Ohio, I wouldn't have guessed that either. But it's been an extraordinary experience, and I really do love the city of Cleveland, and it's been a great place to obviously get to meet my wife there and raise a family, and it's it's been an awesome journey so far. While I was researching for this interview, I noticed that there's an autographed business card of yours available on the Internet, actually in a couple of places. Prices range from nine ninety nine to forty five dollars. Did you ever imagine that that would be an actual thing? Uh, I joke with people all the time when they ask me to sign something. I'm like, do you realize the value of this is going down if I sign this baseball? It's right now. It's new. It's worth whatever sixteen or seventeen dollars. If I sign it, the value is going to go down. So, uh, yeah, I didn't think people would be selling autographed items. 
Probably not what you thought when you got your first box of business cards. Right, either, right, right. Last year, you were one of 16 people appointed to Major League Baseball's new competition committee. What interested you most about that opportunity? It was a great honor to be asked to participate in the committee because we have it provides us a forum and to shape the potential direction of the game moving forward. And Rob has continued, and other members of the commissioner's office has continued to seek the committee's input and to have a voice in that. Uh, has really been a fun uh, fun experience for me and a, a great learning experience as well. You talked a little before about how you'd almost be embarrassed about what you called analytics back yeah. 10, 15 years ago. For so many years, the past 10, 15 years, there's been this narrative about there are scouting guys and there are mm -hmm. analytics guys. When do you think the industry realized that teams need to incorporate both to become successful? Yeah, actually, it was one of the things that we thought about at the time as a debate was being pitted as either or. We saw that as an opportunity in Cleveland where we'd say, why does it have to be either or? We're seeking to get the best information from not only scouting and analytics, but medical and strength and conditioning and sports psychology. Let's put all of those things together and build the best decisions and best development environment we can that utilizes the best of all of those worlds. And so I think Obviously, the industry, I think, as a group, no longer views it as an either-or, but as how do they complement each other. 2017, you guys have your 22-game winning streak. At what point during that streak did you start to think, wow, this is, this is pretty amazing? It was surreal. I think the most surreal part of it for me is in professional baseball, you condition yourself that you play a lot of games, you're going to lose. Even the best teams are losing 40-ish percent of them. So you inevitably have that feeling of waking up in the morning after a loss and you kind of have to shake off the hangover and start your day. Um, to not have that feeling in professional baseball when you're playing games for three and a half weeks was, I, I didn't know exactly what to do just because you get so conditioned to figuring out a way, okay, I've got a, something happened in last night's game, obviously if we lost, something didn't go well. So you end up thinking about that, have to find a way to compartmentalize it and move on. And to not have to do that for three weeks was just, it was surreal. Uh, your peers voted you the Sporting News 2017 Executive of the Year. What did that honor mean to you? I think it's a direct reflection of the people I've had a chance to work with my entire career and the group of people that are here in Cleveland now. So as I said at the time, that award is a reflection far more of them than anything that I've done. What is it like to see a player like Francisco Lindor blossom into a star at such a young age and get to watch him every day? It's been an honor to watch Francisco to grow and develop. I think he represents so many great things about the game of baseball, not only the skill, the incredible skills that he has, but the work he puts in, his passion for the game, and then his sheer joy for playing is so fun to watch. He always has a smile on his face. He cares more about winning than he does about individual accomplishments, and to have someone who embodies all of those things and cares deeply not only about his teammates, but he cares about his community. He's always willing to do charitable work wherever that is and try to find a way to positively impact other people's lives. He's such a great representative for the game of baseball and for our organization. You talked about after a loss, you have to kind of shake it off and, and look ahead to what you can do for the next day. Is there anything you can do better than sending Corey Kluber to the mound? <laughs> it's a, having the chance to watch Corey grow and develop as a pitcher and see all the work that he's put in to get to this point and be as consistent as he's been in not only his routines but how he's performed has been so fun to watch and there's not another guy I'd rather have on the mound than, than Corey. Last one for you. You saw 
what the Cavaliers' 2016 title meant to Cleveland. They yeah. got the rings the first night of the World Series uh, in 2016. What would it mean to you to bring the World Series trophy back to Cleveland? It's why we go to work every day. It's to try to find a way to do that, and it would mean a lot uh, to the organization and it would mean so much to the Cleveland community to, to have a World Series championship and to, to help be part of something that could elevate the lives of so many people and create so many uh, positive experiences and emotions and memories for people or if something that is motivating and something that we're all trying to work to accomplish. Chris Antonetti, Indians President of Baseball Operations, thank you for joining me. Appreciate it. My pleasure, Mark. Thank you for the time. Many thanks to Chris Antonetti for taking the time to sit down for this week's episode of Executive Access. For our next episode, I'll be joined by our own in-house general manager, my MLB.com colleague and former Mets and Orioles executive, Jim Duquette. We'll discuss the upcoming non-waiver trade deadline, examining the process of making deals from an executive standpoint, and look back at some of the biggest mid-season trades in recent history. You can search for Executive Access on Apple Podcasts, Art19, or wherever else you listen to podcasts. So be sure to subscribe and enjoy these conversations all season long. If you like what you hear, leave us a review while you're at it. We always appreciate those. And be sure to spread the word and tell all the baseball fans in your life about Executive Access. Until next time, I'm Mark Feinstein. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can waste another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can conquer it. I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. Any road. The steeper, the better. Because my all-new Santa Fe is available with H-Track all-wheel drive, so I can hit the trail without a worry in the world. Heck, with three rows and best-in-class rear cargo space, I can pack the whole family in with all our gear. We've got available dual wireless charging for our phones, so we'll never lose touch with civilization, and we won't lose touch with the primordial power of Mother Earth. So which is it? Waste the weekend or do something a little more epic? And conquer it in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai. There's joy in every journey.